Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1, where the prophet says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of verse 4. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. It is this last phrase. I'm not going to focus on this phrase, but I'm not going to pass by it either. Where you read at the end of verse 4, the just shall live by faith. That is a text that is referenced three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10 verse 38 all of which lay great stress on the glorious Reformation truth that the just are to live by faith. And so we are indeed to live by faith and not by sight. What I'm interested in, however, this afternoon is what is recorded for us in verse 2, where we read, And the Lord answered me and said, Write, a, write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. The book of Habakkuk is unique among the minor prophets, and that you do not find the prophet anywhere in the course of this book uh, proclaiming the Lord's message to the people. Common activity for a prophet, but not for Habakkuk. What you find, rather, in the prophet Habakkuk is a debate between Habakkuk and God. Uh, We won't take the time to go back and read it, but I I, I commend it to you, a short book. Take the time to read it uh, sometime in the course of the day. And you'll discover that in chapter 1, the the prophet has a complaint. Lord, there is so much wickedness in the land. When are you going to do something about it? The prophet is distressed, and and, and distressed in ways that we ourselves uh, readily find ourselves distressed today, don't we? So much wickedness in the land. And we could spend a lot of time elaborating on it, but I don't think that's necessary. I doubt that anyone here needs to be convinced of it. So much wickedness in the land, oh God. Well, what are you going to do? Why don't you do anything? The prophet was losing his patience because the time of wickedness seemed to be so lengthy, and yet God seemed to be so indifferent. And then God addresses the prophet It says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up that nation to the north of you, the nation of Babylon, 
And that nation is going to come through and basically become my tool of judgment upon the land. And the land is going to be devastated, the Lord says, in effect. The people will be led into captivity and judgment will prevail. Well, that's not exactly the answer that the prophet wanted to hear, uh, nor was he expecting. And so he goes on in his side of the argument to suggest to the Lord, uh, God, I've been complaining about how bad things are, but to the north in Babylon, I mean, they're even worse there. And you're going to use them as an instrument of correction to, to come and exercise judgment on the land? And so that's kind of the stage that's set when you come into chapter 2, the prophet has just uttered his complaint, and he said, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He's fully anticipating now, isn't he, that the Lord will step in and answer, I'm going to be rebuked, and I invite that, and we'll see how I respond to that. And when the Lord does answer the prophet, he speaks about a vision, okay? Write the vision, verse 2. Now, when when we read that word vision, uh, we often think in terms of things that we can see. Vision, after all, pertains to sight. That's not necessarily the case. In Scripture, every time you see the word vision, it can be speaking uh, simply of a divine communication. The entire book of Isaiah, I don't know if you realize this or not, but if you look again at the opening verses in that book, you will discover that the entire book of Isaiah is referred to as a vision. A vision that comes to the prophet. Now, uh, there is certainly an instance in Isaiah where you do see a vision, so to speak, when you come to chapter 6 and the prophet beholds the Lord in his glory. Uh, you could argue, yeah, that is certainly a vision of the glory of God and the glory of Christ. But it's the entire book and not just that sixth chapter that's referred to as a vision. A vision basically is a divine communication, a means through which the Lord did address his people through the prophets. And in the case here, if we were to continue our study in Habakkuk, uh, you would discover that the Lord does reveal in this vision to Habakkuk that, yes, uh, Babylon will be the tool that I use, However, Babylon too will be judged, and in the end it will be my cause, the Lord's cause, that does prevail in the earth, and the cause of Christ does triumph in the end, and that's what enables the prophet in this incredible statement that you have at the very end of the book in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will joy in the God of my salvation. What a remarkable statement and evidence of one who is taking to heart the word that came to him that the just shall live by his faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And when we walk by faith and not by sight, it means that we have confidence in the unseen things. We have confidence in the things that are revealed in God's word. We have confidence that though the circumstances around us in the present hour might not seem to suggest it, yet we know that in the end, it will be the Lord's cause that prevail. Righteousness will prevail. The Lord will return. There is coming a new heaven and a new earth. And so we have cause for joy and rejoicing no matter what the present circumstances say to us. We have to learn to take the long look, so to speak. And that's what the prophet was being called on to do. Now when you read in verse 2 of the vision, the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. There is also, I believe, a very practical and spiritual way in which visions can be viewed. And that's what I want to focus on for only a few moments this afternoon. I can remember uh, shortly before I was ordained to be the minister of this church, uh, I was appearing before Presbytery. And the issue of my ordination was uh, on the docket, something to be considered. It had to be approved by the Presbytery. The church had issued a call to me, and that's well and good, but that doesn't determine the matter. The presbytery, too, has a voice in this, and so this was the matter being considered. It was my uh, first appearance before the presbytery, and, oh, I want to say probably seven or eight years. Uh, I had been a member in the church here. I'd been a ruling elder, actually, in the church here for a time uh, and during uh, those years, uh, I never had occasion to uh, attend presbytery meetings, but here I was. It was down in Greenville. The issue was brought up, and um, I never will forget it because Dr. Cairns had a question for me. And that question went something like this. Uh, Jeff, what is your vision for the church in Indianapolis. What was my vision? I, you know, I, I can appreciate the question because what Dr. Cairns was wanting to avoid was merely uh, acting upon a convenient circumstance, okay? Um, Paul Fitzsimons had felt the Lord leading him back to Jamaica. There was a vacancy in the pulpit here. Do we simply uh, stick Jeff Bannister in that position because he happens to be there and we're going to be governed by convenience in the matter? And uh, no, I, and by the way, I wouldn't have that either. 
When I was first approached about the matter, I suggested, and it was Ryan Elliott, I never will forget it, who approached me about it for the very first time. Uh, When Paul went back, I was the last remaining ruling elder. And Ryan came to me and he said, uh, how's the search for a minister going? And I said, well, it's just getting started. Who do you have in mind? You want to bring somebody in? We can have preach. And he said, well, how about you? He said to me, and I said, well, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the the token of your confidence, and uh, let's see how the Lord leads in the matter. And the thing that was paramount in my thinking at the time was uh, exactly the same thing that was in Dr. Kerr's thinking. We can't do this just because it's convenient. Okay, It, it has to be the Lord's leading, has to be the Lord's call. And so Dr. Cairns wanted to know, what is your vision for the church in Indianapolis? And I remember saying to him in response to his question that while we don't want to pass over anybody when it comes to the ministry of the gospel, yet I am very mindful of the fact that there is a very solid core of young adults in our congregation. And if those young adults can have the gospel ministered to them effectually, then I feel confident that the Free Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis uh, will be passed on to the next generation. I believe that vision came to to fruition When I think of those earlier days, I think, of course, of the Nyman family, the Manring family, the Elliott family, the Meng family. And I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe you do. Maybe you've forgotten. But we went through a period of no less than 12 years, probably longer. It may have been as many as 15 years in which there was always, always a family expecting a baby. <laughs> you know, uh, think about that. Manrings, Nymans, Mangs, Elliots, you know, Warpels, they were part of it too. And uh, the church flourished that way uh, over that period of time. And uh, at our highest, we were probably knocking on the door of 100 people at that time. So that vision I like to think was fulfilled. That was a vision that the Lord had given me. I like to think that the Lord honored that vision. But then there came the time, and we're all very familiar with this, where we saw a great reduction in the church. For various reasons, there were departures. For different reasons, there were people unhappy with me, unhappy with the session, Uh, Some people just uh, very angry about this, that, and the other thing. And so there was a great deal of uh, tension within our ranks during that time. And I feel like uh, when we entered into that chapter of our existence, I felt like the Lord gave me a renewed vision. And the vision went like this. Lord, let us be a reduced number but by your grace, grant that will be a wholly unified number. 
And grant, O Lord, that whatever remains of this church, that we will be united in the fear of God and love of Christ, that there won't be anybody who is ashamed of what we are, uh, bent on trying to make us something other than what we are. And grant, O Lord, that we may continue with a strong spirit of unity within the remaining people in this church. I like to think that the Lord honored that vision as well. Didn't come in an instant. Oh man, it, it took some time and it took some toil and it took some effort and a lot of prayers and a lot of dealings with people. But at last, the vision did come. And I, I like to think that the Lord gave that vision as well. And now here we are today. And I was sharing this a little bit with the elders and deacons in our last session and committee meeting. I, I, I feel like the time is upon us for yet another vision. Uh, third chapter, if you will. Third vision as it pertains to the church. And as I was describing this to the elders and deacons, the thing that I pointed out to them is we are greatly reduced in number, and yet I cannot deny that I see tremendous potential in what we have in our little work here. I realize that we have to be careful that when you're formulating visions, and when I'm speaking of a vision in this practical way, I'm not speaking of something that's inspired Okay, uh, the way visions were in Old Testament times. And I am mindful, especially as I think of it in the context of the book of Habakkuk, I can draw so many parallels between the current state of our nation uh, with the nation of Judah in the days of Habakkuk. And I do think that we are a nation that is on the brink of judgment I, I don't know uh, if things can really be fixed in our land merely through reform. Uh, it is almost as if the Lord has to wipe the slate clean. It's what he did in Judah. It's what he did in Jerusalem. And the time may be upon us soon when that has to happen to us as well in this nation. Um, in that case... There's a text in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2 that we do well to make our own in, in the light of what we're facing as a land. Uh, I, I don't want to formulate a vision that is out of kilter for the times in which we live or for the way the Lord has moved in the past. And in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, the prophet prays, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Boy, there is a prayer that we do well to make our own. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. And be merciful of this little church. We are such a tiny part, O oh Lord, in the bigger picture of things. And in your wrath, remember mercy. 
It's another verse that comes to mind uh, out of Jeremiah. Did I mark it? Yeah, it's in Jeremiah chapter 45 and verse 5. Keeping in mind now uh, the situation with Jeremiah, uh, the same really as Habakkuk. In fact, they, they may have been contemporaries. Uh, I'm not certain about that, but that may have been the case. Uh, but the message that was coming from Jeremiah was basically the same. Jerusalem's going to be judged. This land is going to be taken into captivity. That did not mark the end of the Lord's plan of redemption. And in fact, uh, the faithful remnant, the ones that were able to say amen to the idea of God's judgment, were given a promise that they would be preserved even in the land of their captivity, and to borrow from the words of Ezekiel, the Lord would be a little sanctuary to them in the land of their captivity. So with that setting in mind, the Lord has a question that he puts to Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5. And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord. But thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places whither thou goest. That was actually a message to Barak, who, who um, aligned himself with Jeremiah in Jeremiah's day. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. So I, I, I keep that in mind when I think about Yet another round of visions. What do I envision for myself? Do I want to become the pastor of a mega church? Do I want a large and thriving work, you know, that will just have to burst the walls and rebuild the building and make it like that picture you showed us <laughs> from the uh, convention center or whatever it was in Toronto? Um, no, nothing of the kind. And in fact, I, I'm not even particularly concerned that we ever have to outgrow this building. But what I envision within this building is the Lord in his wrath being merciful to us and in his mercy giving to us once again something that we've had in the past, which is thriving, growing young families, raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, that requires some steps in order to be fulfilled. That means I've got to pray that the young people of this church, Lord, provide spouses for them. You may feel uncomfortable with that, okay? I don't mention that often because I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable at the thought. But I will tell you, and I am deadly serious in this, I pursue this with all my heart. When it comes to me seeking the Lord in prayer, and if indeed the Lord is giving me now a third round of visions for this church, I can give you assurance that by the grace of God, I will, with praying and fasting, pursue this vision. Lord, raise up God-fearing, Christ-honoring spouses for the people in this congregation. 
And if it please you, Lord, grant that this may happen without these folks having to leave us <laughs> the way so many have already. And uh, that may have to happen, okay, but it doesn't have to happen across the board. Oh, Lord, raise up God-fearing, Christ-honoring spouses for those that are of age and for those who will soon be of age. And then grant, Lord, that we will see something of what we've seen already in this church. Um, thriving, growing families that raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, when we were considering that text in Philippians. We find it here. Is it Philippians 4? Philippians 4 and verse 8. You remember we thought on this under the theme of um, guarded thinking. Uh, gospel thinking. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And as I contemplate this vision that I'm now describing to you, the question that I take to the Lord is, uh, Lord, uh, doesn't this kind of thinking fit what's being described here in this text in Philippians? Isn't this true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report? Oh, Lord, if this kind of thinking is in line with the way we're supposed to think, then, Lord, honor the vision. Fulfill the vision. I'm mindful also that there is a place in our praying uh, in which our desires uh, do weigh into the equation. Psalm 37, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Note that especially, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And I pause as I contemplate this vision, and I ask myself the question, Lord, am I delighting myself in you? Am I trusting in you? Uh, he, he goes on to say, commit thy way unto the Lord. Uh, trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. Verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. So I, I apply this psalm in the context of this vision, and I ask myself the question, Lord, am I trusting? Am I delighting? Am I committed to thee? Am I... Um, resting in thee? Am I waiting patiently for thee? If I am fitting the description here, Lord, that is given as an alternative to fretting, then Lord, give me the desires of my heart. 
Give me the liberty to count them as being the very desires, Lord, that thou thyself has placed in my heart and bring the vision to pass. I wonder today, I was very thrilled after sharing this with the elders and deacons when one of our deacons, Danny, he said to me, I'm going to take the vision you just described and I'm going to devote myself to prayer with regard to that vision. Amen. Is that a vision you folks can join me in sharing? Can we take this to the Lord? Doesn't mean it'll happen in a day, okay? We are commanded to wait patiently for it, okay? Though the vision tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. Doesn't happen in a day or in an instant. It does require uh, fervent praying, pursuing on our part. And you know, among the things that I pray for when I think of the Lord raising up, God-honoring, Christ-fearing spouses for the young adults in our church is, Lord, grant them patience and lead them not into temptation, but deliver them from evil. Grant that they'll patiently wait and that it will come about in such a way that the hand of God will be evident to all when it comes to fruition. So I'd like to take these verses. This is the last sermon for me for the year 2023. There is one more Sunday. Chris Sidwell will be here for that one. You can hear his vision perhaps for the new year, but uh, that is my vision for the new year, and I'm going to adopt these verses, I believe, in Habakkuk chapter 3 as our motto text as we enter into the year 2024 so that I may keep this vision before our little group that we may all pursue it together. I think it fits the description for how we're supposed to think it is true, it is honest, it is pure, it is lovely, it is of good report, it is virtuous. But we're told to think on these things and think along these lines. Let's pursue the vision. See what the Lord will do. He's given me the last two. And like I say, um, I'm not professing to be a prophet or to have inspiration the way prophets did. But I do think there is a practical and spiritual application that you can draw from visions, which means an aim or a goal, so to speak, for a church. Uh, that kind of vision is very important. It says in Proverbs 29, verse 18, that without a vision, the people perish. And I think vision in that uh, usage is referring to the means of grace, especially the teaching and preaching of God's word. If the vision of God's word is absent, yes, the people perish, but in a practical sense as well, in what I've been dealing with today, I think the same thing holds true. If we don't have any aim or sense of purpose or goal, uh, then we uh, kind of just drift aimlessly. And that's never good. 
May the Lord then stamp such a vision on our hearts, give us assurance of it, and give us the needed grace to pursue it as we enter soon into a new year. Well, let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We cannot deny, O Lord, that we are a nation destined for judgment. And O Lord, by thy grace we say amen to it because we know that we are a sinful nation and we know, O Lord, that the kind of situations in which we find ourselves on a national level cannot go endlessly without God stepping in to wipe the slate clean. We pray, therefore, Lord, that in thy wrath thou wilt remember mercy, and in that mercy grant, O Lord, thy provision. Grant, O Lord, God-fearing, Christ-honoring spouses for the single adults of this congregation, for those that will very soon come of age for that kind of thing. May we see it come to pass for the honor and glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.